Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Opioid addiction has reached epidemic proportions here and across the country. Joining me in studio are Howard Weissman, outgoing executive director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse for the St. Louis area. Nicole Dawsey is director of prevention education for the council here. She will succeed Mr. Weissman as executive director after his retirement next month. Thank you both for being with us. Nice to, nice to have you. Thank you. Nicole, congratulations on your new assignment, as it were. Look forward to talking to you a lot in the future. Thank you very much. Hopefully not so much, but I we know. probably I will know. be talking. Howard, let me begin with you. Uh, we've talked about this subject, the opioid epidemic, a number of times. Uh, is it looking any better than it has during our past discussions? Well, um, Don, it's a tale of uh, sort of two populations, and uh, we may have talked about this in the past. The death rate among adults is continuing to climb. And the, the numbers are not fully in for 2017, but it looks as if we will again have set a record. 712 people died in 2016, and it looks like it'll be closer to 750. Uh, more significantly, 80% of the deaths are due to fentanyl. Uh, fentanyl has introduced a new level of lethality, so people are um, experiencing accidental overdoses uh, um, sort of much earlier in the uh, addiction cycle. What is the basic age range of people who are addicted? I mean, is it primarily young people or is it the, the, the whole gamut? Um, generally, people with opioid use disorder are a bit older. Um, in their 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, as you know, there's such a connection between the use of opioid pain medication, prescription pain mm -hmm. medication, and later illicit uh, heroin and then fentanyl use that it's not uncommon to have users be uh, even older than that. Mm, we do, do hear a lot about younger people, uh, late teens and, and early 20s that are addicted. Well, it's like everything else. I mean, when it happens to someone young, um, it becomes uh, much more of an epic tragedy, uh, which explains why we are focusing our efforts on uh, the youngest people and focusing our efforts as far upstream as we can possibly go to prevent addiction from ever taking root in the first place. Nicole, your area at the moment is prevention education. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. How do you go about that? Sure. And to Howard's point earlier, the opioid use disorders that we're seeing and, and the deaths are occurring of people who are older, who are above usually the age of 25 or so. Um, but kids today are actually using drugs at lower rates than ever before. And um, it's pretty incredible, actually. And we think it has to do with a lot of work that's being done in communities and in schools and in homes. Um, and, and we think it has to do with the work that public education is doing, that broad public prevention education campaigns, um, like the ones that we provide in schools and like the ones that we're going to talk about a little bit um, in a few minutes. In terms of the, the prevention that we do, so NCADA goes into schools beginning and grade kindergarten. We go all the way up to 12th grade. Uh, schools invite us in, administrators, counselors, social workers, classroom teachers, invite us in to augment their efforts. And last year, NCADA served about 74,000 kids in 
in this region in 260 schools. Now, of course, in kindergarten, we are not talking about opioids. Mm -hmm. We are not talking about marijuana or anything like that. But we are really talking about those coping mechanisms that sometimes when kiddos don't have, they're more inclined to look for other ways to handle that, whether that's self-harm, whether that's bullying, whether that's substance use, whether that's even things like suicide. And so in kindergarten, when we go in and we're, we're in the classroom, so we're utilizing the, the carpet and the teacher's rocking chairs and they're sitting at their desks and they're coloring handouts and things like that, but we're talking about friendship and who are grown-ups that you trust? How do you work together on a team? How do you set a goal? And those programs build incrementally um, as as the years go on. Around fifth or sixth grade is really when we start talking about drug-specific information. What kind of tools do you use? You mentioned coloring books and things like that. I'm, th- I'm thinking of, of, of evidence to these youngsters of the most horrific aspects of drug addiction. Do you get to that? Not really, because evidence shows that that doesn't really work. Um, Scare tactics don't really work. Mm. And if you think about past campaigns like the Just Say No to Drugs phenomenon or This Is Your Brain, This Is Your Brain on Drugs, scare tactics might shake them for a minute, but the teen brain is wired to think that they are invincible. Mm. So they're looking at their scare tactic and they're thinking – well, that's never going to happen to me. Mm. So when we go in and we do start introducing um, specific drugs, we're talking about consequences, real-life consequences. But we're also saying you have a lot of power. We're not here to tell you what to do because you have enough adults telling you what to do. But we're here to give you information because you have a lot of say in the matter, and we know that you're going to make the best choice for you, the healthiest choice for you. So we aver- avoid words like right and wrong, um, uh, good and bad. Um, and it's all about healthy and risky and harmful or less harmful. Um, sometimes schools will specifically ask that we bring in someone who has maybe struggled with a, an addiction um, and has come out on the other side or maybe a loved one who has lost a child. There's a time and a place for those things, but if if we are going to build that into the menu of what we offer the school, it's not a standalone because mm-hmm. the kids really need solid, factual information. Interesting that you mentioned the young brain. We've, we've talked about that in various contexts on this program. It really is something that people are becoming more and more cognizant of, how it's not yet developed in, in, in the teenage years and that it can be very damaging to them. And this really ties into the campaign that has already kind of had a soft launch and now we're, we're really launching on Saturday because if you think about a parent or a caregiver taking, taking um, ownership of their child, that when they first come into being, right, they're setting boundaries on what they can and can't touch. They're putting covers on the light sockets. They're not introducing peanut butter for, you know, however long because they don't want a nut allergy, right? Mm-hmm. They're doing all of these things. They're taking them for vaccinations. And then in middle school, parents and caregivers start to loosen up a little bit because they don't always know how to set those boundaries. They don't know how to set those expectations. And at precisely the age where many parents pull back is really the age where they need to even be more present because the the kid's prefrontal cortex, which is their judgment, their impulse control, the reasoning, 
that's not developed. And it won't develop until it's 25. Mm -hmm. And when we say this at parent meetings, we say, don't worry. You know, we're not telling your kids that this is an excuse for their poor behavior, but it's an explanation. Because sometimes teenagers make some risky choices, don't always know why they're doing it. But at that point in time, they really need those adults to be that prefrontal cortex to say, hey, wait a second. Let's think through the consequences. Let's think how this is going to impact you in one, five, ten years. We'll get to the campaign in just a moment. But, Howard, just following up on that, I'm sure you're familiar and have observed the kind of things that Nicole has just been talking about over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think – you know, we vaccinate our kids against measles, and Jonas Salk, in, you know, came up with a polio vaccine, and we don't worry about polio anymore. And people believe there is no Jonas Salk for addiction, but in fact, there's social science literature. There's 35 years of social science literature that tell us what the known protective factors are, and we can inoculate kids with the known protective factors that will help insulate them from the known risk factors they're likely to face as they uh, grow into the teen years. What are some of those factors? Connection to school, connection to community, connection to family, and um, specifically the issue of connection to family um, is that sort of at the, at, at the foundation of this Talk About It campaign, which we'll be talking about shortly. We'll be talking about it right now. That's a nice segue to it. Talk About It is the campaign that you mentioned a couple of moments ago, Nicole. Talk about it. (laughs) Thank you. So many uh, listeners are probably familiar with the PSAs, the the commercials that we've run over the last uh, several Super Bowls. And three years, for the last three years, really, those commercials have been very jarring, very controversial, um, kind of doom and gloom. And they were really designed to bring attention to this issue and then to give people something to do about it. So last year, for example, we focused on the storage of prescription medicine. Well, people are aware that we're in the middle of the worst drug epidemic in modern history. People get it. You can't listen to the radio or watch the news or scroll through your phone without seeing something about it. But there's also this feeling of hopelessness. And so what we sought to do with the Super Bowl commercial was to to give families something to do, something very easy, something very simple, not time intensive. And that really clearly is just start the conversation. Have the conversation with your kids about boundaries when it comes to substances. Um, what is harmful? What is hurtful? Um, How do you want your children to behave in certain situations? Um, We know that when parents or adults have these conversations with their kids, it doesn't reduce the risk of them becoming addicted, but it cuts it in half. I mean, research says that if parents and caregivers have these conversations with their kids, it cuts it in half. And so the Super Bowl PSA really was a soft launch for this campaign. We have a website that is talkaboutitstl.com where parents and caregivers can go to download or to access some free one-page talking kits. They're broken down in various age groups. And then on Saturday, we're having a community day. We're going to have 20 locations throughout this region 
where we're going to have volunteers in bright orange shirts manning these gigantic prescription pill bottles at very high-trafficked locations, trying to urge families to start talking about some of these issues. We have to take a break. We'll get back uh, and be a little more specific on these kits and what uh, tools the parents will have to work with in just a moment. We're talking about the opioid epidemic in the St. Louis area, and of course, it's a national epidemic. That conversation will continue in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back as we continue our conversation, a conversation that is, on the opioid epidemic with Howard Weissman and Nicole Dawsey of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse for the St. Louis area. Nicole, let me come back to you with regard to uh, a little more information on these kits. Obviously, it's important to arm the parents with the proper information to tell these uh, youngsters. What, what exactly uh, will be in these kits? What kind of information? Each conversation kit starts with some tips, how to have the conversation, maybe even a suggestion on the type of environment. For example, in middle school years, teenagers, because of their brain growth, don't really do well with eye contact, with one-on-one, let's sit down and have a conversation, look me in the eye. So we give suggestions about maybe doing that conversation in the car or while you're cleaning out the garage or playing basketball. Um, So in addition to kind of some when, where, and how, it also gives examples of conversation starters. So for example, with the pre-K to second grade talking kit, some of the conversation starters would be, what does it mean to be a grown-up? Who are grown-ups that you trust? What are some yummy things you put into your body? What are some yucky things? And the idea behind these conversation starters is that they're really supposed to capitalize on teachable moments. I'm education background by trade, and we, we look for those moments where you can really sneak in kind of a, a prime opportunity mm-hmm. to have those conversations. We have several kits on the website. One is pre-K to second grade. One is grades three to five. One is for middle school. One is for high school, and one is specifically if you are suspecting that your teen is misusing. It's a very different conversation. It's interesting that you say sneak in information because it occurs to me that there are a lot of teenagers who don't listen to their parents very well, if at all sometimes. And that's a real challenge for the parent to get that information in. Do you want to take that, Howard? Well, um it certainly feels that way yeah. to uh, the parents of teenagers, and and yet we know that teens are listening, and we do know that parents who set uh, you know clear and specific rules and boundaries, again, reduce their uh, risk of their child developing a problem by about half, and. Um, Parents do remain a significant influence in their children's life, even during the years where peers become uh, a significant influence. I want to take some calls if people in the audience are interested in getting into the conversation. 382-8255 is our number. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at sdlpublicradio.org or send us a tweet at SDL on air. Nicole, back to you. What kind of help do you see coming in this whole process 
from uh, national government, state government, local government? Are, are they in there helping? So I actually just got back from Washington, D.C., as a matter of fact, and NCADA is an affiliate of a national organization, and so yesterday we had a a day at the Hill, and we do have reason to believe that there's going to be a pretty significant funding package directly related to opioids coming out, they are hoping, before Memorial Day. Um, Now, traditionally, many of those dollars that have come out are really geared towards treatment and recovery and medication-assisted treatment, which are things like naloxone and Narcan, all very valuable tools, and we need to have those in our toolbox. However, we also need a significant portion of any of these spending bills at the local, state, or federal level to really include an emphasis on universal prevention. These are – it's critical – so that, as Howard said earlier, we can intervene further upstream because right now we're trying to put a Band-Aid on a problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we have a caller. Let's bring in uh, Gary calling from University City. And, uh, Gary, welcome to the program. You're on the air. Thank you. I, I'm an emergency physician. I really applaud uh, your guests and I applaud you for focusing on the opiate problem. And I'd like to just suggest that the people in the audience could do some useful advocacy and, and ask their senators and representatives to support the kind of efforts that your guests are discussing and to not support what the FDA is currently doing, uh, which I'm, I'm hospital-based. Right now, in response to the opiate epidemic, FDA has restricted the supply of injectable opiates to hospitals in some misguided idea that it's going to actually be useful. And in hospitals, we have things like we have people like cancer patients and post-operative patients who legitimately need opiates. But there's a manufactured shortage going right now because the FDA is limiting opiate producers' ability to distribute opiates to hospitals, and uh, it's well-intentioned but misguided. So I would just ask if your if your listeners could do so to contact Representative Lacey Clay, um, Representative Wagner, Senator McCaskill, Senator Blunt, and ask them to have, have FDA direct their efforts to treatment and education programs like your guests are discussing and not to creating false shortages at hospitals. And thank you for very much for the chance to um, communicate this knowledge, which I know to be factual because I've gotten it from a former president of the American, Hospi- the American Society for Hospital-Based Pharmacy. Gary, thank you for the call. Howard, do you want to take that? Well, uh, first of all, I, I appreciate Gary's call and his call for more advocacy. Uh, could not agree more. And he's right. I mean, the, the opioid epidemic has... Um, created uh, a variety of underreactions and a number of overreactions, and Gary refers to one of the overreactions. Um, You had asked Nicole if there's money coming down, if government's going to intervene, and and certainly there will be some government funding. But while we need government to be far more involved, and by the way, the solution to this problem is going to involve a whole heck of a lot more than a, a border wall and a national ad campaign, um, but we need help in our community, and we can make measurable market differences in our community if we have the help of private citizens and the business community. And we need people to help support our Talk About a campaign and our other prevention-focused activities here and now. We already have two great partners in Express Scripts and uh, the local office of the DEA, and we'd love to have more. 
And, Nicole, doctors are not entirely blameless in this whole process because they have been typically and traditionally quick to prescribe these things, and uh, they wind up in the medicine cabinet or in the wrong hands. True, true. And I, I think the the challenge that we're facing right now is that this is such a complex problem, and everyone is looking for someone to blame. And it doesn't matter if we look at prescribing patterns or parents maybe who haven't had the conversation. I mean, my parents never spoke to me about heroin. Mm. Why would they? Heroin, when I was growing up, was a thing that, you know, Kurt Cobain did and Janis Joplin did. They would have no reason to talk to me Mm. about that. So if we look for where to place blame, then that kind of just prevents us from really looking at how to solve the problem moving forward. And quite honestly, it's if we don't intervene further upstream, we are not going to get to the root of addiction and substance use disorders entirely because when it's not opioids, it's going to be something else. You say your parents didn't talk to you, but in a sense, parents do talk to kids when they show the wrong examples. I have a note here implying that, uh, you know, if the parents smoke, there's a pretty good chance that the kid is going to smoke. And if the parents uh, are, you know, reliant on opioids for pain relief, chances are the kids are going to try it. Even more than that, Don, it's if we live in a a society that tells us to take a pill for everything, that permits direct-to-consumer advertising, pharmaceuticals on television. If parents are modeling the uh, the behavior that every little ache or pain is fixed by a pill, they're contributing uh, uh, to their child's miseducation. Sure. Let's take one more call here. Kathy joins us from St. Louis. Kathy, thanks for waiting. You're very welcome. Um, I just wanted to sing the praises of Encada. Um, I have a son who is a substance abuser, and at one point he was ordered by the court to um, treatment and then referred to a for-profit treatment provider. And I really didn't trust that because I felt like they had an investment in finding something wrong. And indeed, there was something wrong. It wasn't hard to find. But but in any case, the treatment didn't stick. And we ended up in the office of Encada, um, where I felt he got a very thorough, excellent, long, unbiased, evaluation, and then we were referred out to um, some nonprofit, not-for-profit treatment centers and counselors as well. And um, it was just a, it, was, it is such a valuable resource to this community. And I, I don't, I don't know if many parents are utilizing them for their, um, their evaluation skills, but I think I made a $25 donation, and, and it, was, it was as thorough as any kind of evaluation he's had anywhere. So I just wanted to say how much I appreciate your work Kathy, as a parent. thank you. I'm sure the, uh, the appreciated, yeah, it's appreciated much. here. The, and Cotta being the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse, by the way. What about the uh, prescription uh, – what is it called now? The prescription? Prescription drug prescription PDMP. monitoring program. Yeah, is that working? Do we have any sense that that's taking hold yet? Well, it depends which one you mean. Um, the uh, St. Louis County PDMP, which is being yeah. adopted by other counties around the state, is um, very very successful. 
Uh, it's covering the vast majority of Missouri residents and the overwhelming majority of Missouri prescribers. Governor Greitens executive order, his statewide uh, PDMP, uh, the Senate Appropriations Committee just yesterday uh, gutted the funding and uh, – there there effectively is no statewide PDMP per executive order. Well, sorry to hear that. I'm sure you are too. We'll have to wrap this up. Nicole, is there a final thought you want to leave us with with regard to your uh, your program, which begins on the 14th? Sure. So um, before I do that, I would just like to say to Kathy, um, who called in a moment ago, thank you so much. And um, that is one of the, the purposes of our initial founding in 1965 was to really provide unbiased and neutral referrals um, for teens and adults who may or may not need treatment. That program is absolutely still in existence. We have counselors available, 314-962-3456. And that is one of the um, unknown and yet super valuable services that we provide. In terms of Saturday, we are going to be all across the St. Louis region. We have some pill bottles in Franklin County, St. Charles County, um, Jefferson County at the Arnold Library. We'll be at Tower Grove Park. 10 to 1, we will be in bright orange shirts by gigantic pill bottles. So you can't miss us. Stop by and um, we'd love to give you some more information about our campaign. Again, that's talkaboutitstl.com if you can't make it out. We will put uh, all that information on our website at stlpublicradio.org. I want to thank you, Howard Weissman, for being with us. Uh, good luck to you as the next chapter begins in thank just a couple much. of weeks. Nicole Dawsey, good luck to you as you, you begin the new chapter in your life. Great talking to both of you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.